This is The Big Interview. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. This is a podcast that delves deep into a myriad of real-life remarkable stories. We do love a good yarn, but beyond that, we explore how individuals find their purpose, how people react to the unexpected, and what happens when they're pushed to the brink. It's the story of what happened on August 7th. 1974. It was just after 7 a.m. New Yorkers, they're going about their daily business, and they look up, and they see the most unbelievable sight. There's a man with a balancing pole. He's walking a wire, which is just about an inch in diameter, and it's strung between the World Trade Center towers, 1,300 feet above ground. Let's hear a little bit of what it was like for news agencies at the time watching the events. Up here at 1,500 feet or in that area... There is somebody out there in a tightrope walk between the two towers of the World Trade Center, right at the tippy top. That somebody was Philippe Petit, a 24-year-old Frenchman, doing his higher wire act 1,350 feet up and no net below. You have this inconceivable sight, right? Just the image. You can imagine it. A man that high up walking between two towers. Why? How? Nobody knows this is going to happen. It's completely secret. The other part of this that we mentioned was equally enthralling was how they managed to pull off this stunt in the first Mm -hmm. place. I don't mean the stunt of him walking, but the stunt of them actually, you know, getting up into the buildings and managing to string that wire and getting him there without being stopped by the authorities. The whole story was turned into an Oscar-winning documentary, Man on Wire. This was in 2008, and it was all based off of Philippe's book, To Reach the Clouds. Here's a little trailer for you. It's impossible, that's sure. So let's start working. There's 200 feet between the towers. And there were going to be some guys in the North Tower. The whole idea would be that Jean-Louis would send the arrow from one building to another. What? We just weren't ready. Ma'am! I didn't want to be liable for the death of a friend. So that just gives you a sense of how many people were involved in this, how many different moving parts. I mean, this is all happening while he's managing to stay under the radar of the authorities and building security. And I think a lot of people don't realize how long this was in the works, how long he had been planning this feat, because the story behind it actually started when Philippe was just a teenager. He was sitting in a dentist's waiting room. I decided six and a half years before I did it, when the towers were announced to be built, but they were not built yet. 1968, I was like 18 years old, and I had just started a year or two to learn by myself high wire walking. And I was already impatient to conquer amazing uh, structures. By accident, I uh, stumbled upon a page of a newspaper in Paris, and they had a picture of a model saying this is a model because the towers are not built yet, but when they are, they will become the highest towers in the world. And I immediately put a little wire between the towers, but of course no one on the wire. And that was the beginning of the dream. Talk about being audacious. You've only been doing this for a year or two, and you think, hmm, the highest buildings in the world haven't been built yet. Yeah, I'm going to walk between them. Mm. He decided, even before they were up, yeah. 
Yeah. And yeah, that's amazing. Of course, as you heard, he was in Paris. He's more than 5,800 kilometers from New York. He's completely captivated by this idea. But how do you bring something like that to life? It was obviously a feat that would require meticulous planning. So I asked him how the dream for this simple line that he drew in a magazine started to take shape. First, it was not six years day and night working on it. You know how a dream works. A dream evaporates and then comes back to your heart and then evaporates again. So in the first few years, I was haunted by that thought. And then I started uh, collecting every article, every uh, engineering, a magazine article on, on the building of the Twin Towers. And uh, when they were near completion, um, I thought I have to run to New York because when they would be completed, I, I cannot disguise myself as a construction worker and bring a ton of equipment and spend uh, 12 hours rigging at night. So I have to do it now. And that's how it all started. And I read that you said that when you walked from the subway, you got your first look at the towers, that you knew your dream was destroyed instantly. Can you explain what that meant? Well, it was the the vision, my first vision uh, in real life, not a photograph or a model, but my first vision of the real building when I got out of the subway. And, you know, when you got out of the subway, you're a little bit like a, a bull before a bullfight. You're completely blinded by the darkness. And here in full, full sunlight was those two giant structures um, really going to the, the clouds. And when I saw the, the immensity, the non-human scale of them, I was crushed in my dream. I, I knew my dream was ridiculous um, to walk between them, but mostly to to come up with the, how to bring equipment in secret and to rig between the towers. That was obviously an impossibility as I was looking at those. Beautiful, the way that he describes things. The way, you know, what caught me is how he described a dream as something that evaporates and then comes back to yeah, you. And I mean, it was, it's just so visceral the way that he mm, describes things. He's a poet. Yeah, the other thing about him that struck me was him having that setback of looking back at this thing that he had dreamed of, he had started planning for in Paris, and now this was the first of what he called coups. He did these visits from Paris to New York as part of his planning, and he called them coups. Um, And he had a setback where he looked up at it for the first time in its physical presence when it wasn't just a photograph, Mm. and realized that it was impossible. And for me, that personally humanized him, because you hear of somebody doing something like this, and you think, who, who? Who can do that that fearlessly? And some of the things that he was saying about conquering his fears, you know, it's, it's difficult to relate to. So we talked a little bit about how when he was staring up at those towering structures, how he recovered from the crushing impossibility of that dream that he had been imagining for so long. It is in my personality to recover in a matter of seconds when I am facing the impossibility, I shrugged my shoulder and I said, okay, let's work on it, you know, one step at a time. And that's how I I recovered. And that's how in New York, I spent eight months daily spying on the Twin Towers. And I was studying, you know, how you bring equipment when you do a delivery or a moving of 
office furniture, what are the, 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 the time of the guards, uh, on what floor, uh, do they have a desk with a walkie-talkie, and what kind of ID. So it was really, I call it spy work. I love the juxtaposition of this sort of beautifully idealistic dream yeah. and then this very nefarious sneaking around <laughs> because it's obviously highly illegal what yeah. he's trying to do. Absolutely. Kind of, you kind of imagine uh, somebody in like a trench coat just yeah. kind of skulking around. I'm but thinking Pink Panther right now. Yeah. I've got to be honest, I'm thinking Pink Panther. I it don't was, know why. It was more that he was in constant disguise. He was pretending to be a journalist, as we heard. He was pretending to be a construction worker. He was basically just conning his way onto the site day after day after day. And now his spy work, as he called it, is continuing. And we'll go into that in more depth. But his preparation for the walk itself is also continuing. And when you learn of the story, you think, what does it take to be able to walk a wire with that level of confidence? So it's twofold. One is the technical part and the other is the artistic, the, the creation, the soul part. So technically, um, you can walk on a wire of all kinds of diameters. I, if you look at the fingers of your hand, I like to walk on a wire that is the size of your index finger, more or less. Uh, sometime larger. It's made of steel. It's very heavy. Usually you buy it from a factory and it's greasy because it's not for wire walkers. It's for elevators, bridges, you know, industrial use. So you have to clean it. Then you have to learn of how to tighten it. You tighten it with a tightening device. There are many of those. And you have to learn the right tension. And then it vibrates when you walk on it. So you have to guideline it with ropes or cables, you know. Um, so all that is a technical uh, knowledge that you acquire from the circus. Uh, but I was not born in the circus, so I learned by myself. And then the other part is um, without which, in my opinion, you cannot become a good wire worker, is the, the soul, the creativity, the, the personality, um, the search for perfection and um, understanding the secret of balance. I mean, uh, balance is a natural thing. We, you know, we are on two legs, but uh, we long, long time ago, our ancestors were on four legs. So we made the switch of balancing ourselves on two legs, which now we take for granted. But not many people know how to walk. If you look at the crowd or at people in the streets, they they don't know how to walk, most of them. Um, so I dedicated my entire life from 14 to today, I still do it, to the art of walking, I beg to differ, Philippe. Balance is definitely not a natural thing. <laughs> certainly not for me. I anyway. think that's what he's saying. Most of us don't know how to walk, and I'm certainly among those people. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Because I, I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with you. I was on the treadmill the other day. We kind of just stumble along, I was along, walking right? on the treadmill the other day, and I was thinking, do I need to change my walking technique? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> do you conscious of it? Yeah, Am absolutely. I going heel-toe, heel-toe? Absolutely, completely. Because yeah. I, I know that I, I'm very front-footed, so I sort of galump for long in a very in a very <laughs> ungraceful way right um, but yeah just the, the way the body moves and having an understanding of that but then you've got to take it up to the high wire where you're thousands of feet above the ground um, how you have to ask did they not get caught but it turns out, he told me, they did get caught many times, in fact. And he used one example. He said a week before the big walk, he was disguised as a worker who was measuring things on the roof. He was asked for his ID by a police officer, and the police officer simply warned him never to trespass on the property again. 
So I think it was just that it was so lenient back then. Mm. It was kind of like, okay, they did get caught, but they got kind of shooed away. Yeah. Get out of here. Don't do that again. Yeah. Finger wagging at Mm. you. And so they were able to continue to come back. There was a whole team of them working on this. Um, So he did, in fact, he planned his dates for the walk. One of them, in fact, he had to abandon last minute. It wasn't necessarily as smooth as you might think. Eventually, they fixed the date for the 7th of August, 1974. And now I asked him to explain to me what went down in the 24 hours leading up to this death-defying performance. I load the truck. I... um Uh, And then it it was actually the day before, in the afternoon, we uh, did a false delivery with false papers underneath the Twin Towers. And it was a gamble. It could, in two two seconds, uh, they could have said, hey, your papers are not right. Get out of here. Uh, But we passed. And then uh, (laughs) there was a lot of miracles. No elevator where uh, freight elevator uh, were free for me to bring my equipment upstairs because there was a giant delivery of uh, of office furniture and all the elevator had been rented. I didn't know those things. Anyway, I waited all afternoon. And again, this kind of, you know, uh, um, do not give up, do not give up. And then at the end of the day, out of pity, the, the four men of the elevator say, okay, uh, bring your thing. And then it's the last trip of the day and get those kids upstairs. I don't know what they're doing. They're delivering something. And he didn't even look at our false papers. And that's how I got all my equipment. But then it was still daylight, so I have to hide. And my friends on the other towers who had no equipment, they were disguised as architects and lawyers and, you know, um, completely different than us. We were uh, disguised as construction workers. So they had to hide as well in the North Tower. So they hide, two friends hide in the North Tower very close to the top. Me, I hide with my two friends very close to the top on the South Tower with a ton of equipment that we can hardly carry. It's not a, a you know a box with a ton in it. It's a box, and you take every item and you carry it on your shoulder. But somewhere like 400 pounds, you needed three people to carry the cable, for example. Anyway, we manage, and then all night uh, we put the cable up with a lot of uh, problems and, you know, without making any noise, without using flashlight, uh, uh, crawling on the floor, not to be seen by guards from the other tower. I mean, it was really an an adventure. And then in the morning, a bit by miracle, uh, the war was not completely, perfectly rigged, but I thought, uh, let's go because the workers, the construction workers at 7 a.m. were starting to appear to continue their work on the roof. And I knew if they would find me there, my balancing pool in my hand, they'll jump on me to prevent me to get on the wire. So that's how I did my first step. Oh, my word. (laughs) How on earth did he connect the wire to the two buildings? That's what's really, really vexing me right now. Yeah, because that was one little detail he left out when he was describing the preparation. Now, they actually fired the line across by bow and arrow. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. What? They how? fired one end of the line across by bow and arrow, and then that's how the sort of the end of the wire had reached the other building, and that's where on each side he had people that were rigging it. And as you heard there, the rigging wasn't absolutely perfect, and he refers to that as well. He could feel the instability of it. Oh, ah, but hey, ho, it's just my life we're yeah. dealing with here. <laughs> Let's just go across anyway. They're going to be at work soon, so I better get a move on. Well, there he is, because he said there I took my first step because I had to because people were 
were starting to arrive at the site. It was early morning. People were arriving. He basically, it was time to go. And he went. And he is up there dizzying 110 stories up in the air. He doesn't make one simple pass across. He goes back and forth eight times. He was up there for about 45 minutes or so. And onlookers are below. They're gasping. They're cheering. Helicopters are starting to circle above. Police are now on the roofs, on the sidelines, trying to coax him off the wire. You can just imagine the level of distraction there was there as well. So let's hear a little firsthand account of what people were seeing. Sergeant Charles Daniels, who talked Petit off the high wire, called it a first-rate performance. He was bouncing up and down his feet were actually leaving the wire and then he would resettle back on the wire again and then he would go down on one knee and he'd balance the uh his uh hand pole and lay down on his back and put his hands behind his neck and just completely relax and swing one of his legs over the wire in a carefree uh, manner. Lay on his back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is insane. <laughs> he was smiling. He was laughing. He was prancing. You know, he, was, he wasn't just doing a simple, careful walk. This was a performance, as you would expect of someone of Philippe's character. Yeah, he was shrugging his shoulders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, we talked to him also, of course, you have what people were seeing from his perspective. No matter how much you prepare, and, you know, in part of his preparation, he had actually hired a helicopter so he could get a sense of the height from above that he was going to experience. You know, he had really, as we heard, he had really done his due diligence here. But it doesn't matter. Obviously, you never get to do a test run of something like this. So how did it feel like on the day? So here I am doing my first step. And I am, of course, uh, elated and I am impatient, uh, you know, imagine uh, waiting for that moment for seven years. So um, I do the first step, but I was really concentrating on how bad uh, the wire was. It was vibrating a lot because I had not been able to go on the other tower and check the rigging. And my friend on the other tower, they are not professional riggers. They were, you know, doing the best they could. So I was pretty uh, careful on the first few steps and then I see pictures of me later I start smiling because I know um, the why is not perfect but I know it's good enough for me to do a safe walk and then I started enjoying myself it's not perfect <laughs> but it'll do and I enjoyed myself basically that oh my word this is this beggar's belief what an incredible achievement from Philippe, just, not just to get there, but to do it. Such a larger-than-life persona and personality as well, because Philippe is now 71 years old. As we mentioned, this event that we're talking about took place 46 years ago. Yeah. I think the act itself is so unbelievable. It's so phenomenal that it was one of the technical details, really, that got me that I thought, oh, I can't believe how he managed this one. Because we know that towers, when they're that high, they sway ever so slightly in the wind, right? I asked Philippe how he overcame this, and I was really surprised at just how much movement he was dealing with. I did my homework, my engineering study, and I found out that the towers were built to be able to sway now, not visibly, but actually to sway three feet one way, three feet the other way. And I thought if I put my wire tight between those towers, and if they want to move, my wire is not going to bother the building. They're going to 
go from three ton to three million tons, and then everything will explode. My wire will be cut in half. I will be thrown to the ground. Uh, it will be a disaster. So I studied that, and I said, how could I create a spring effect on my cable that I pull at three ton, and if the towers want to move, uh, it will still stay more or less like that. And I thought, um, I, ideally, I would bring a giant spring, you know, like four feet tall spring with a crane, but this is illegal, I cannot do that. So what I did is I created a one-way spring, which is not as good as a real spring, which was in the form of blocks of wood, and I didn't have even to bring them because the towers were still on construction. So on the roof, I found pieces of wood. I put it around the steel beam where I attached my cable, and I tightened my cable. And I thought if the tower wants to move, the cable will dent will go inside the wood a little bit. So I got a little bit confused by that the first time I heard it. I had to listen to it, you know, at least twice to kind of really wrap my head around it. What I understood is he's using the word spring there, but he's describing basically putting almost a wood cushion around the steel beam that he's tying his wire to. So as the building is moving, the wire is actually just eating into the wood. As he said, it's moving into the wood almost like it's a cushion. And he did say, obviously, that it worked because it had, he had seen at the afterwards that the, the steel wire had really gone into that wood. There's educated thinking and there's knowledge, but applying it when your life is on the line like yeah. that is so kind of cavalier. It's crazy. He was just so confident in what he was able to do and what he was able to achieve. That was the overwhelming sense I got of him and that he was... You know, again, if you called him somebody doing a stunt or doing a, a daredevil, he, I think that would upset him. In fact, I think I, the word stunt came out of my mouth and he corrected me Ooh. very quickly. Yeah, it was one of those moments. But he is somebody who, who thinks about preparation and focus. Those were the two things that really stood out to me in terms of how he described doing these things. Now, of course, he was arrested by waiting police after about 45 minutes when he did finally get off the wire. He, um, however, was not charged, really. All charges were dismissed. And that was in exchange for a performance in Central Park for children. (laughs) It was just everybody was so, you know, enraptured by him and what he had managed to achieve. They could not think of punishing him for this. Um, He had, of course, now he has completed high wire walks around the world, even before this event that we've talked about in New York City. He's walked the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, the Sydney Harbor Bridge as well. And um, we talked a little bit about how he overcomes his natural response to fear. So to explain my lack of fear, I have to go back to my very strong faith. I have a faith in the cable. Obviously, I know the cable won't break because I became a self-taught engineer. Um, I have a faith in the weather. I study the weather. If not, I will not get on the wire 10 seconds before a thunderstorm. I have faith in me, meaning I know I am not indestructible. I know I don't know anything that there is to know, but I know enough to know that I am not putting my life in jeopardy. And because of all that faith combined, and and also faith in my own strength and my own and years of rehearsals, I put myself on a walk in a state of mind of knowing I will be victorious. Well, at least he checks the weather forecast. Yeah. <laughs>
What a mom. He is now 71 years old, and he is not slowing down at all. He tells me he still feels like a kid. He wakes up with enthusiasm. He's working on a number of projects at the moment. He's written a number of books. He's got so much going on. I have projects uh, all over the world, and uh, actually I was I was looking. There, there is the, uh, the, the taller structure, the Burj uh, Khalifa. Maybe there is something to be done there. And then when they were uh, building the Burj al-Arab, hotel i also was i took a, a clipping in a magazine and i put a little wire incline from the ground to the top of the hotel thinking that would be really beautiful tom cruise eat your heart out <laughs> philippe is coming to le burge khalifa <laughs> and we doff our berets to him because that man is one of the best guests we've yeah. ever had Thanks for listening, and if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.